Now we're going to finish Second Peter today, and we're in chapter three from verse 10. What we've noticed is that God has created the world for judgment. That's what this world is about. We understand from the Bible that sin has cursed the world with futility. But that did not change the purpose for which God made the world. He's already used the world one time for judgment at the flood. And the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. And so the world still has God's purpose and it's still active. God is going to judge the world. God also created time. And time has a purpose. The purpose of the time that we have is to prepare us for eternity. Peter wrote this letter to prepare his readers for that time when time runs out and they need to be ready. It made me think of the old Larry Norman song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Anybody ever heard that? Now, this is a blast from the past. It's an old Jesus freak song. I wish we'd all been ready. And we want to be ready too. And the question is, what does ready look like? And it means that you're found the way Jesus wants you to be. And that you affect others around you at the same time. So we're reading now in chapter 3 of Second Peter from verse 10. And Peter says here, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware 
lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So we're to be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus. And Peter refers to this coming in three ways in this passage. The first is in verse 10, and he calls it the day of the Lord. It is specifically the revelation of Jesus Christ in glory and power as God. Now, the first time when Jesus came, he came in humility, and he didn't stop being God, but that was, as it were, veiled, veiled in human flesh. But he didn't stop being God. He came as a real human being in order to be a substitute for us. Part of the biblical concept of a kinsman redeemer is that you had to be related. And so Jesus became related to us by being born as a real human being. Cells in his body and bones and muscles and flesh and blood. And as a human being, he fulfilled all the requirements of God's law. All 613 laws. All of them fulfilled completely and perfectly to where God says, This is my beloved Son. In him I am well pleased. But then Jesus also fulfilled the curses of the law for disobedience. Though he had broken no law, there was no curse for Jesus because he was absolutely perfect in righteousness, and yet we have all disobeyed the law. And that curse of the law is in effect, but because he is sinless, he could suffer in our place, and all the curses in the law for disobedience were carried out on Jesus. So he fulfilled all righteousness. He fulfilled all the curses. All of the law is fulfilled in Jesus. And through him, we get to announce the forgiveness of sins. Anybody who puts their trust in Jesus receives forgiveness, salvation, you have to receive him as Lord in order to receive him as Savior. If he's not the Lord, he's not the Savior. So we get to encourage everybody, be saved from this wicked and perverse generation. That's the message of the gospel. Now Jesus is coming again into the world. This is part of the gospel. But when he comes for the second time, it's not to be as, I guess, a human being. 
and weak? Able to be damaged? No, he's coming when the heavens open and there he is revealed with all the angels and the saints and he's coming to the earth in power, overwhelming power and majesty and glory and anything raised up against him, he will smash. No excuse me, or is it okay if I, none of that stuff. Anybody even picks up a gun and wants to squeeze the trigger, pow. He's gonna smash the nations with a rod of iron, and he's going to assign punishment and rewards. This is what a ruler does. To all those that have obeyed him, submitted to him, pleased him, he says, well done. To those who have resisted and rebelled, he says, depart from me, you wicked. He's going to restore the creation to perfection. He's going to rule in righteousness. The day of the Lord. Now the second reference. was right here a minute ago. It's in verse 12. He calls it the day of God. Now, this is interesting because when Jesus rules, God is the outstanding characteristic of this day. In Isaiah chapter 11, I'm going to read here. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So it's not going to be like it is now when you see God marginalized and unjust leaders taking advantage of people and betraying their trust. It looks like evil gets away with murder. Maybe you've heard of the situation in Australia that they're pushing uh, the vaccine passport idea so strongly that you can 
not shop without a vaccine passport. You can't go to places. You can hardly do anything. They're forcing people to be vaccinated. And there is no recourse because there's no way to get past the government or get a group of people together to say, can we please look at this and be reasonable? Now that tyranny is happening more or less all over the world, forcing people in a way that's never been done in the history of the world. And it looks like tyranny and evil is getting away with murder. But in this day to come, God is really going to be everywhere. Obvious. Zechariah 14.20 says, In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. Now, this is reference to what God's high priest wears. It's a gold plate that's attached by a blue ribbon to the turban that the high priest wears. And the gold plate says, holiness to the Lord. But this time to come is going to be so full of the knowledge of the Lord that even the bells on the horses are going to be engraved, holiness to the Lord. And God is going to be everywhere in the culture. Everything's going to be holy to the Lord, right down to the bells on the horses. Ka-ching, ching, 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 ching. Let's see what your bell says. Oh, look at that. Holiness to the Lord. The day of God. And he alone is going to be exalted in that day. But there's a third reference, and it's verse 18. And you look in your translations and you don't even see the word day. But it says, to him be the glory both now and forever. And in the original language, that is literally to the day of eternity. So we have the day of the Lord, the day of God, and the day of eternity. Now we read of the last judgment in Revelation chapter 20. When the unrighteous are cast into the lake of fire, even death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. You think, well, that's weird. But see, death is an intermediate existence. There are people who are dead right now, and they haven't been judged, so they're dead. And there's a place for them. That word Hades in Greek means the unseen. And that's where they are, in an unseen place. Death is an intermediate existence. It's not forever. They have to do with time. But the lake of fire is eternal. And the idea of death being thrown in and Hades being thrown in means there is no more such thing as an intermediate existence. The lake of fire is forever, and anyone who goes into that will be there forever. There's nothing after the lake of fire. There's no such thing as purgatory. 
So anyone who goes in there, the lid goes shut, and that's it. Now, God's blessings are forever. In Revelation 21, verse 1, it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So we come to eternity, and there's kind of a fork in the road. All the wicked, the displeasing to God, are going to have an eternal destiny in the lake of fire. But for those who please God, for those he's redeemed, they're his people. Eternity is about God with them and them with God. You see that phrase, I will be their God. They shall be my people. And that's what eternity is. So the third part to the coming of the Lord, and that is the day of eternity. So here's three ways to describe what's going on. And Peter, in verse 10, is showing us the beginning of that day and the end of the world. He says it comes as a thief in the night and results in a huge explosion and fire that burns up the world and the heavens. Now, you got to realize that he's not talking about a 24-hour day. Does everybody get that? There are actual days in the Bible. For example, the first six days of creation and the seventh day, which is a rest. In the language there, they are literal morning and evenings, 24-hour days. There's no way to misunderstand that language and say, well, it was a day-age kind of thing. No. The end. Stop that. God created the earth in six days, literal 24-hour days. But here, the day of the Lord is a metaphorical day, a time characterized by something. For example, we would say the day of the British Empire is over. Okay? And we understand that's not a 24-hour day. Even Jesus used this metaphor of speech in John 8, verse 56. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
Now, the Jews he was talking to understood. He wasn't saying, Moses saw my 24 hours. No, it's a time that is characterized by something or someone. And this day of the Lord, this day of God, this day of eternity is characterized by these three things. The revelation of Jesus, the knowledge of God overall in this time, and the day of eternity. Now, Peter says, the day of the Lord begins like a thief in the night. That's the very, very, very beginning of this age characterized by God and eternity. Now, what that means is nobody is going to notice when the day of the Lord begins. Because like a thief doesn't want to be seen. This isn't like robbery where somebody steps out, pulls a gun and says, give me your money or I'll kill you. Thievery, theft, is done to not attract attention. So you're quiet and you tiptoe real quiet and then you do something and you steal it and then you tiptoe out and nobody knows what's happened. That's how the day of the Lord starts. In fact, nobody's going to know that it's happened until it's too late. Now, that event that begins the day of the Lord is the rapture of the church, rapture coming from a Latin word meaning to snatch. And it's a Latin translation of the Greek word, which means to snatch, just like that. That's how you want to steal a lady's purse said Pastor Rob. <laughs> Everybody learn the right way here. When you want to snatch her purse, you don't let her know you're coming. Hi, coming to snatch your purse. She's going to go like this and then say, go, go smash his head to her husband. Nope, you go before she knows what's gone on, right? Okay, so what God is going to do is just snatch the church out of the world. All the living and all the dead in Christ are all going to rise at the same time. Boop, we're gone. Now, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 3.10. The popular scenario is the left-behind books, that it's going to happen. People vanish. <gasps> Worldwide chaos, jetliners crashing because the pilots have been snatched and cars smashing. and All over the earth, there's chaos and screaming and panic. What has happened? But the guys that lived with their patient, believing wives, who just kind of said, ah, oh, babe, I'm not into this. Leave me alone. They know what's happened. <gasps> My wife is gone. This is what she talked about. I've missed the rapture. What's going to happen to me? So that's not going to happen. And you know why? Because anybody on the earth that's left won't even know what hit them. See, there won't be anybody on the planet who's even read the Bible. 
wouldn't even know where to look, wouldn't even say, huh, I wonder if that was the rapture. They'll just say, that's weird. I haven't seen that guy in a long time. Good riddance. He's always needling me and trying to get me to, uh, don't even need him. If they even think that far. You know, it's going to be fast and silent and unnoticed and nothing. And life is going to tick on and nobody's going to miss a beat. Does everybody get that? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now, you think, how could that possibly happen so that nobody even notices? In my own personal thought, this isn't scripture, just take it for what it's worth. They're making noises about another lockdown if the cases of COVID pick up in the wintertime, right? So wouldn't a lockdown be a fabulous time to just snatch everybody? Who would know? The answer is nobody. So just file that one away. Maybe there won't be a lockdown. And so my theory is nothing. This isn't scripture, okay? But I just think, gosh, what a great time for a rapture. We're stuck at home, can't do anything. Nobody's going out, nobody's looking around. Can't work, nobody would know. Okay, I'm done. Now, the reason that the church leaves first, the reason why that's the first event, is because in the entire prophetic scenario, that one thing has no requirement. There's nothing that has to happen before Jesus pulls the church out of the world. Everything else has a prerequisite. Like, why doesn't the Antichrist show up? Ah, he who restrains has to be taken out before that happens. Well, what about the temple? Ah, the Antichrist has to come first in order to build it. So see, there's all these prerequisites that have to happen first. But when you get to the rapture, nothing has to happen. There are no requirements to be fulfilled. You know what? It could happen at any time. There you go. That's the first thing that has to happen. So, you don't have time to get ready should the rapture happen. If you're going to try to time it to get ready when he's ready, you're probably going to miss it, and you only get one chance, right? Right? Okay, so the only thing you can do is to be ready. Now, Jesus isn't kidding here about eternity. And so we have to take it very seriously. Now, Paul says the day of the Lord is like labor pains. You know what labor pains are like? They start off kind of just, and you, you have a labor pain, you go, what was that? 
Ah, it's probably nothing. And then something else comes along. You go, you know what? I think, oh, I think something's going on here. And then, oh, that, that hurt. That hurt. Oh. And then all the labor pains come together in one big, long, ah, I can't do this. And then you got a baby. I've seen it. So the rapture is this little bing. And somebody might go, what was that? Ah, it's nothing. But these things are going to build with intensity. It's going to be horrific. And it's going to happen over seven years. That's what Daniel 9 says. Revelation also says that multiple times. So the day of the Lord begins with the rapture, seven years of increasing tribulation. And then Jesus comes, and every eye will see him. He'll destroy all opposition, set up the kingdom of God on earth, rule for a thousand years, and it says that five times in Revelation chapter 20. After a thousand years, the devil is released from the bottomless pit to deceive the nations one more time, and they get deceived. Fire falls from heaven on them, burns them up, then we go into the last judgment in eternity. So Peter emphasizes that the heavens and the earth will be burned up with fire. He actually says the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now, even back then, secular theory was that everything has to be made of something, some kind of elements. And they decided it was air, fire, water, and earth in varying combinations. We've come a long way, and we understand atomic theory and that there are elements composed of a certain number of electrons, protons, neutrons in gradually denser forms. We know that there's tremendous energy holding these atoms together. All you got to do is start a chain reaction and begin to release that energy, and it's like huge, right? Devastating. Now, think about this. That the universe contains billions upon billions of galaxies, each containing billions and billions of fusion reactors we call stars. And they're carrying out their fusion, um, releasing tremendous energy, but it's all controlled. And, you know, all God has to do is just release the control and let it all go, and suddenly the entire universe is going to be one big fusion reactor, and all the elements will melt. Now, I think that would sort of make the entire universe a lake of fire. But again, that's my speculation. I just think, wow, the whole thing goes up. 
But it does say here that the basic materials of the universe will be destroyed. God is going to burn the fabric of reality. But it's not important to know how the lake of fire comes to be. It's really important not to go there. Does everybody get me on that one? So now that we're done looking at the day of the Lord, we realize Peter wants his readers to be ready for that. So he says, you know, what kind of persons ought you to be? And we're going to look at that. What does ready look like? And it says right there in verse 11, holy conduct and godliness. This focus on God is what the day of the Lord is all about. And it's what eternity is all about. So that's to be our lives right now. The big controlling idea in our lives should be God. So we want to focus on God in our lives because everything's going to pass away. All the important stuff to us, my guitar, and I know this is a concern for you guys too, my guitar is going to burn. See, nobody here cares about my guitar. That's because I don't care about your Legos. Your Legos are going to burn all your... Pokemon is going to burn. I'm sorry to break it to you. It's all going to go. And so if that is the way it's going to be, can I really afford to invest my heart in stuff that's going to burn? Kind of like Lot's wife. Here she is being delivered from Sodom, being burned up. And the angel said, don't look back. And she looked back. Why? Because that was her whole life. Her whole life was bound up in Sodom. And it was being destroyed. She could hear it being destroyed. Oh, no. And she turns around, and right there, she becomes a pillar of salt. Kind of awesome to think she got outside of Sodom. But she went down with Sodom. We don't want to do that. So there's nothing for us here. Everything's going to be burned. We're going to focus on God. That's what ready means. Holy conduct and godliness. Now, another idea about being ready means being patient. Because, you know, uh, in verse 15, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. God is very patient. He sees all the wickedness in the world, the tyranny, the arrogance, the ignorance. And, you know, he's, he's angry every day. There's not a doubt that when Jesus comes back, it's going to be with the wrath of God. But he's patient right now. 
That means he puts up with a lot of provocation in a way we wouldn't. I've often wondered what would happen if that crazy driver's wheels just came off when I think about it. Because <laughs> I'm not a very nice guy. See, it's, well, I repent a lot when I drive. But God, He wants people to repent. He's waiting for them to do that because He knows they will. He's very patient that way. So, you know, that means we're also going to be patient with sinners and put up with a lot because we're really trying to reach them. So we'll put up with arrogance, put up with ignorance, and not write somebody off just because, well, you're stupid, so I'm done with you, even though it'd be really fun to do that. But we don't. We put up with a lot to save people. Ready also means being taught and being stable. You notice that um, in verse 16, untaught and unstable people twist the scriptures. And we're supposed to be on guard against these guys. They twist them, the scriptures, to make them say something than they say really. And I noticed as I was studying that this word means to torture. You know, twist something till it hurts. Bend it and make it do something it's not supposed to do. You think about when somebody's interrogating somebody and they take their finger and say, tell us what we want to know. And then they bend the finger in a way that it's not supposed to go. And that hurts. Tell me. That's torture. And they take the scriptures and they do things with the scriptures that shouldn't be done. They bend them and they twist them. They torture them. And, you know, this is the danger of false teaching. That when they distort and twist and torture the scriptures, that's what's going to happen to you. Those very scriptures twisted will twist and distort you. There's no holiness no godliness, no peace, no patience, no diligence in false teaching. That stuff isn't going to get you ready. So in order to be on guard, you have to be taught. You have to learn. Or else you're a sucker. So you have to be taught. That's how you are ready. And that will make you stable. In other words, somebody's not going to come along and say something whizzy, and you go, oh, I wonder if the, I'm missing the next big thing. And so you jump on the bad wagon too, because you don't want to be left at the station, whatever those metaphors are. But you can see some pinhead come up and talk about the next big thing, and you go, no, be gone. Because that isn't even true. That's not even in the Bible. Get out of here. And you're going to be stable. Now, I looked up what the opposite of torture is. It blew my mind. Merriam-Webster says the opposite of torture is heaven, paradise. 
I also looked up what the opposite of enemy was one time. And I learned the opposite of enemy is savior. So, you know, we want to submit to our savior because it's not like he's going to wreck our lives and kill us. We're submitting to our savior who wants to save us. And the scriptures themselves say that God is going to teach us. That's what I find so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I'm supposed to get up here and I'm supposed to teach and everything. But God himself is going to teach you. This is what it says in Isaiah. 54, he says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Isaiah 26, verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So as we're waiting for Jesus, we want to let him teach us. Teaches his scriptures straight so that we learn and great is our peace. So ready means growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there in verse 18. And you know what that means? It means we're not done yet. We're still growing. We're still going to sin, make mistakes. And we're not proud of that, are we? But we do know what to do about it. And that is go to Jesus. And we're learning him by experience. You know, you come to Jesus and you feel like, man, I failed you for the 5,000th time. Do you even like me anymore? And you're kind of sure he doesn't. Because your best friend, the devil, is right there to say, no, I think you're right, sweetheart. I think he hates you. I think this is the end of the line. I think hell is for you. But you go to Jesus and you realize he washed my sins from me. And he really does want me. And you go, why do you want me? I don't want to find out. You want me. I'm good with that. And you think, what kind of a, an amazing person is God? You know what it says? His loving kindness is forever. That means his covenant, strong, faithful love is everlasting. And you get to experience that. You think, what am I doing resisting God's love? But he loves me. That is the most valuable thing in life. That's, that's what I want to live for. You're growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. This is what our lives are about right now. We get to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Have you ever experienced the love of God to the point where your mind is blown? The Bible says you may do that. You could ask God. You could say, God, would you please blow my mind with your love and see what he does? How would you like to know the love of God like that? 
That is a lawful experience. And the crazy thing is, there's always more. I think I've told you about the time that my sweet grandmother freaked me out. She said to me one time, you know what, Rob? He's more real to me than you are. And I said, oh, that's nice, Grandma. But inside, I was going, Grandma, don't freak me out like that. What do you mean he's more real to you than me? I mean, this is where you get to. You go, I live with him, and I know him, and he's more real to me than you are. You can get to that place. There's more. So, you know, this present time is the patience of God for salvation, for us to grow. And are we making use of that time in the right way? Or are we packaging up our time real pretty and giving it to Netflix and say, here you go. Here's my time. It's all yours. So, the most important thing we can do, when we see that the day of the Lord, the day of God, the day of eternity is approaching, we want to lose our lives for Christ. Right there. And we want to focus on Him. This life is going to be gone, and so we want God to be in everything that we do. That's going to make it last. Everything done in love is eternal. So as we know Christ, as we know his love, we love people. Those things will last. We're laying up our lives in heaven just as we're laying up our money in heaven. But... Here's, here's something I'm thinking about. People think, do I want to live in a way that's going to hasten the day of the Lord coming? What about my family that doesn't know Jesus? Am I actually living in a way that's going to doom my family? You think, well, I'd rather prolong the day instead of hasten it. So let's think about this. This is an exercise in biblical interpretation. And one of the rules to biblical interpretation is that your interpretation cannot contradict the context. If you can find some part of the Bible that contradicts your interpretation, that can't be it. In other words, context is king. Now, you can check your ideas by asking, gee, is there anything in Scripture that would contradict what I just think about here? Like, does God want my family to be doomed? And even in this chapter... It says in verse 9, 
The Lord's not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but his long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. So the idea that if I hasten the day of the Lord, my family is going to die, so I better not do that. That's not a good interpretation. Because that's out of context with God's desire that everybody come to Jesus. Does everybody understand how that can't be the right interpretation? So don't feel like if I live in a way that's going to hasten the day of the Lord, that's going to be bad somehow. On the contrary, that's the way God wants you to live, and therefore, it has to be for the good of people around you. I think that's why we get this impression that, gosh, I don't want to hasten the day of the Lord. Uncle Willie is going to get killed, or whatever. I think the devil wants Uncle Willie to not make it. But what would happen if we lived focusing on God and just saying, you know what, that is my focus. We're going to find that our lives affect others all around us. Because when you live for Jesus and you focus your life on God, you can't be hidden. You're a city on a hill, you're a light in a dark place, and everybody notices it. And see, what they notice is that God is living in you with patience and with love. They know something's up. Have you noticed how the NHS has signs that say we do not tolerate abuse? You know why they put those signs up? Because people are yelling at them. And in many different places, you'll read signs that say we don't tolerate abuse. That's because if somebody's not getting what they want, they take it out right there. That's attractive. But see, here comes somebody who's patient, and something happens, and that person doesn't react badly, reacts with mercy and grace. That's like, wow, what planet are you from? And I've seen it happen. You treat people with kindness, and they go, you're treating me with kindness. What? Tell me, honestly. It's that uncommon. It's unbelievable what can happen when you treat people with love and kindness. You think, that's so pedestrian. No, it's not. You see, everything in the world is pushing towards treating everybody lousy. And it comes from the government on down. Businesses on down. And everybody gets the message. It's time to just look out for number one. Dog eat dog and devil take the hindmost. Just get out of my way. And then here we come along. And you know, the biblical term is sheep for the slaughter. Not dangerous. Sheep have no teeth. No natural defenses, no attack sheep. 
Ninja sheep. Death sheep. We're just there to get killed. And it blows people's minds. So love isn't weird. Love isn't spooky, unnatural, or revolting. Kindness and patience draws people to Jesus. It does not repel them. So if you hold back on following Jesus, what's going to be your profit? It's going to do nothing for you and nothing for anybody else. Your life is a zero. Does that make any sense? See, now, here Peter talks about Paul. He brings in Paul. There's no conflict with Peter and Paul. And they agree in every way. And Paul said something really important to Timothy on this very thing in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Now look, if you focus on God and make him the great business of your life, You're going to save yourself and those around you. It's not like you're going to save yourself, but you're ready. And see, it will affect others around you. This is what Paul is saying. So we're going to focus on God. We're going to focus on love and holiness, peace, stability, Humility and purity. It's going to be good for you and good for everybody else. And that way you're going to be ready. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that there's nothing weird about love. Thank you, Lord, that there's nothing weird about you. We have nothing to be ashamed about. We thank you that you're not like Tinkerbell. You're not like some made-up God. We thank you that you had mercy on us. And your call, you, you called us to live with you. And we get to do that. We get to know your love. And I know that there are all kinds of things competing for my attention. And I know I need help to focus on you. All of us need that. And we pray that you would be our God, we would be your people. Help us to be ready right now for the day of the Lord, the day of God, the day of eternity. 
Is there anyone who hasn't received Jesus today? Anybody who would like to receive Jesus? It just seems crazy, but if anybody wanted to, you could just let me know, raise a hand, look up in my eyes, and I would be happy to pray for you. But that's good. So Lord, we want to be ready. You could come today, but you might take longer. So help us. Help us to stick with you. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.